0: Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua chapter 1. As many of you already know, we have started a new study here at Calvary on Sunday morning. We are looking at the book of Joshua. Why the book of Joshua? Well, because I believe that the Holy Spirit gave us this book in part because it becomes an instruction manual on victorious Christian living. You see, As we finished our study in Ephesians a few weeks ago, we ended with the section in Ephesians where Paul is dealing with the subject of spiritual warfare. And we looked at the armor and the armament or the weapons that God has provided his people that we might fight the good fight of faith against our enemies, which we defined as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And God has given us these things that we might be victorious. And yet, the book of Joshua adds one more important ingredient, not just the armor to wear, and the weapons to use, but the instructions to follow that assure us this victory. Now, here's the thing, as we've already pointed out in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul the apostle said that the things that were written in the Old Testament scriptures, the things that happened to Israel, were actually written down for our learning. So God is telling us that we can look to Israel and see how they related to God, see how they were blessed when they were obedient, how they were not blessed when they were disobedient. In fact, they were chastened. We can look at Israel and learn a lot about living our Christian lives because there are principles that transcend the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. So we have undertaken this study. Now let me just review just briefly for those who are new. The story of the children of Israel. Now we're going to look to Israel to be an example, to to teach us things, right? So the story of the children of Israel from their captivity in Egypt to their wanderings in the wilderness to their eventually entering into the and taking possession of the promised land is really a model of the life of the New Testament believer from captivity to conversion and from carnality to conquest. In other words, it pictures the progression in the Christian life from our, our bondage to sin and Satan to our conversion through Christ and then as Christians to our growth out of the old carnal flesh life into the life of the Spirit, which is a life of victory and blessing. And we said the best way to look at Israel as an example is to see the nation at three key geographical locations in their history. Of course, Israel wound up in many different places throughout the Old Testament. But the three places that are most significant to our study here in Joshua is, first of all, Egypt, secondly, the wilderness, And thirdly, Canaan. Egypt, as we've already said in Scripture, represented the old life. Egypt was a type of the world. Pharaoh was a type of Satan. And the children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt to Pharaoh, just as we were once in bondage in this world to the devil. And God had mercy upon them. See, they couldn't deliver themselves. So the Lord raised up a deliverer, Moses, who became a type of Christ. And God, through Moses, led his people out with a very powerful outstretched arm the bible says and to the blood of the lamb and god brought them out through the red sea and there they found themselves in the wilderness now the wilderness represents a person who is saved but is still dominated by the flesh rather than controlled by the spirit this is a group of people that paul called in first corinthians chapter 3 the carnal christian still a christian still saved but not yet allowing the spirit to really control and dominate, still following after the desires of the flesh more than the impulses of the spirit. Author Warren Worsby put it this way. He said, and I quote, The wilderness experience of Israel depicts believers who live in unbelief and disobedience and don't enter into the rest and riches of their inheritance in Christ, either because they don't know it's there or they know and refuse to enter. They are delivered from Egypt, but Egypt is still in their hearts. Instead of marching through life as conquerors, they meander through life as wanderers and never enjoy the fullness of what God has planned for them, end quote. Well, eventually then, after 40 years of wandering, God brought them into Canaan. Now, as we've already pointed out, Canaan was the third significant geographical location in their history, and it corresponded to the highest level of relationship with God that they enjoyed. Now, some of the old great hymns have immortalized Canaan as heaven, and they've likened Canaan to heaven, but we have pointed out that Canaan can't represent heaven because when Joshua led the children of Israel into Canaan, they fought many battles against many enemies. When we finally get into heaven, there's going to be no more wars because there's going to be no more enemies. By that time, God is going to vanquish all of his enemies and they will be cast into hell or the lake of fire. Heaven will not be a place where we will have any more struggles or warfare or face any enemies anymore. So Canaan can't represent heaven, but it does represent the life of the Spirit here on earth. Again, it's a life of victory, a life of blessing and fruitfulness that is ours right now in Christ. But a life that is not free from struggles and warfare. And so as we come to the book of Joshua, the years of wandering in the wilderness have finally come to an end. Can you imagine being born in the wilderness back then? And you lived all your life up till this point in the wilderness, maybe 30 years or more. You can imagine how you would be tired of that wilderness wandering. It's time for a change, right? It was time for them to begin not to not just talk about the life that God had promised, but to now experience it. And that's where I'm hoping all of us are today. It's great to talk about the precious promises God has given us. It's another thing to enter into them and begin to experience them firsthand. You know, I'm really hoping and praying that God will use this study in our lives here as a church. That if any of you are wandering in a wilderness, spiritually speaking, it's kind of dry and and, and just there's no real fruitfulness. You're just struggling all the time. And, and you hear about these promises that God has given, but you've never really experienced them firsthand yourself. I'm hoping as they stood at the threshold of a new era in the relationship with God, a brand new beginning, that this will be a study where we as a church would stand on the same threshold, spiritually speaking. That this will be a time to say goodbye to the wilderness, all right? I mean, it's time to move out of the wilderness if you're still there. It's time to stop talking about and listening about the promises of God. It's time to begin to experience them firsthand. And so that's my prayer, that God would use this study To bring us into a brand new relationship, we've got a a higher relationship than we've ever known before. And that's not to say it's not going to be without struggles and fights and warfare. We know it will be. Because guess what? Whenever you want to get more serious about the Lord, guess who gets more serious about you? The devil. And I don't say that to scare you, just to warn you. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. But I want you to know something. The devil doesn't mess with carnal Christians, I'm convinced. He doesn't really, they're not a threat to him. But when he sees a person say, Lord, I'm tired of living a carnal, unbelieving life. I want to walk in faith. I want to be obedient. I want to take possession of all you have for me in the Christian life. When the devil sees a Christian who has that heart, well, guess what? He's going to target them. So the warfare will escalate along with your relationship with God. But stay close to the Lord. God will give you grace. Now, the book of Joshua can be divided many different ways. And I've read different commentators and, uh, and authors, and they've divided it in numerous ways. I'm going to do it the simplest way we can do it. It falls into three main sections. Chapters 1 through 5 tells us how to enter the land and all that's involved in that. And if you're struggling with how to enter into a life of victory how to move out of the wilderness of doubt and defeat and where you feel like you're just wandering aimlessly in your spiritual life with not really going anywhere, where you're merely surviving as a Christian but not really thriving, that I think these chapters are going to be especially life-changing for you. Chapters 6 through 21 cover the conquest of the land and dividing their inheritance. And these record for us the different battles that the children of Israel faced once they entered into the land and how they dealt with them. And I think that these picture the struggles we'll face in the Christian life as we seek to walk in the Spirit. Now, that brings us to the last major section, chapters 22 through 24. This is post-conquest stuff. This is they're in the land now; they've taken uh, possession of it. You say, "Well, that's good, right?" Yeah. Well, this should be smooth sailing. No. Because in these last three chapters, Joshua gives his farewell address to the nation. And it includes warnings. He says, look, you're in the land now. But if you think you can just rest on your laurels, basically, if you think you can just coast, you have another thing coming. Because the devil is going to want to remove you from this place of blessing. He's going to want to do whatever he can to take you away from the victory God has given to you and bring you back unto the old life of defeat and discouragement. See, In many ways, once you enter into the life of the Spirit, where you begin to really experience blessing, and God is using you in ministry, I'll tell you this, that is the time to really be careful, because sometimes holding on to what you have is harder than attaining it in the first place. Use a sports metaphor. I've listened to many coaches over the years of professional uh, baseball, football teams, and so on, where they say it's a lot easier when you're trying to work towards the number one team in the country. Because you have a goal you're working towards. Everybody's focused, right? But once you achieve that championship status, after a couple of years, it's hard to keep the players motivated to hang on to what they've already attained. It's a lot easier to motivate people to conquer what they don't have than to hang on to what they already do have. And so in some ways, this post-conquest period is going to be some of the most dangerous. So we would do well to listen carefully to the instructions that Joshua gives us, the Holy Spirit through Joshua, in order that we might re- remain in the place of victory that the land represents. Now, before we actually get into the book, and I promise you we will get into the book today. Before we get into the book of Joshua, let me make a small observation concerning victory and maturity in the Christian life. Listen to me. They are a gradual process of, and have purposely been designed by God to be so. There's a couple of interesting verses in the book of Exodus. You don't really have to turn there. But God is speaking to the children of Israel. At this point, he intended to lead them into the promised land, but you know the story The ten spies brought back an evil report, and the whole nation crumbled, basically. They wouldn't trust God to give them victory over the giants in the land. And so they murmured and complained, and God says, then this generation is not going to inherit the land. So they wandered for 40 years. But back then, God said something I think is important here. I want to just kind of make a small footnote before we actually get into the book. In Exodus 23, verses 29 and 30, listen to what God said. He said, I will not drive them out before you in one year. Talking about the enemy. Lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit The whole land is the idea. In other words, maturity is a result of many victories over the enemy over a long period of time. See, God has designed it that way to keep us in a constant state of dependency upon him. I want you to think about this. If victory had come too easily or too quickly for Israel back then or for us as Christians today, guess what would happen? Guess what would happen? We would fall into pride. Self-reliance, and we would cultivate a very independent attitude. Have you ever thought about why, if if the Lord Jesus Christ has already, he's already won the battle. The Bible says, you know, when he went to the cross and rose from the dead, he vanquished all principalities and powers. He totally defeated the enemy. He put the enemy under his foot, so to speak, a place of submission. So why, when, we're, when we get saved, why can't we automatically just walk in total victory? Think about that, right? Why do I struggle at all with the world, the flesh, or the devil? They're already defeated. Jesus, in Christ, I, he's gained the victory. Why does God uh, allow us to, to go through these struggles and these war, this warfare? Because if we didn't have these things to keep us on our knees, in a state of dependency upon God, we would become... Proud, self-reliant, and independent. And those things would lead to our downfall. Look, warfare is not pleasant, but listen, it's necessary. Because Paul the Apostle said in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10, I'm not going to read the whole thing, you know it. But Paul talked about because of the abundant revelations that God had given to him that God also allowed a messenger of Satan to come and to attack Paul on a regular basis. And Paul said, I asked the Lord three times, Lord, please take it from me. And Paul said, the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul said, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities boy he had a whole different mindset than most of us have today all right he's like bring on those infirmities lord they're good for me are you nuts paul no man i need those because i get all puffed up and proud man there you go then i would fall for sure i take pleasure in my infirmities and in reproaches and needs and persecutions in distresses for christ's sake for when i am weak then i'm strong and that's exactly what we're talking about here we need spiritual warfare If the Christian life was too easy, and everything came too quickly, we wouldn't have a heart that would persevere. We would be very independent from God. And you know what? The only time you're going to enjoy the power of God in your life is when you're weak, in your own strength. And that's why God will allow us to go through difficult times. Not to break us, but to build us. He wants us to become more dependent on Him and less dependent on ourselves. So what I'm saying here is don't get discouraged. By the slowness of your growth as a Christian or the lack of total victory in your Christian life. Because God has promised us that he will continue to drive out the enemy from our lives little by little until he completes the work he started. Philippians 1-6 guarantees us that he will finish the work he began. You know, in our prayer time before uh, service this morning, we were praying and some of the guys were thanking the Lord for delivering them out of alcohol and drugs. And cigarettes and other things. And I thank God for that because that's exactly what we're talking about. If you would talk to those men and say, Were well, you perfect? Yes, of course not. But see, this is an evidence that God is driving out the enemy. Don't give up. See, Israel at one point went so far with victory, they got tired of fighting. And they just said, Well, nobody's perfect. So, you know, there's still enemies in the land, but who cares? God says, I care. You lead the enemy in any area of your life that will be a beachhead from which to attack all areas of your life. Don't give up the fight because God is working. And so keep your eyes on Him. Now, I promised you, turn to Joshua chapter 1. And let's read the first two verses. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, It came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, Jordan River, you and all this people to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. I want you to notice, first of all, that Moses didn't lead the children of Israel into the promised land. In fact, God forbid him from doing so. And this comes out of something that happened in Numbers chapter 20, the first 12 verses. Where after many years of wandering in the wilderness, the people complaining all the time, you know, after a while, it just started to wear on Moses, all right? got to feel sorry for this guy. Remember at one point, he says, God, these aren't my kids. Why, why am I strapped with all these? These are your kids. Why am I having to put up with all them? See, he got frustrated like I think most of us would have. So here we go now. It's been, you know, years and years and years they've been complaining at various points. Here once again, you know, there was no water. They were thirsty. And they began to cry out against Moses and against the Lord. Why has the Lord led us out uh, into this terrible place? Boy, Egypt was a well-watered land. You know, why did he lead us out here in the wilderness to die? We have no water. Our livestock have no water and blah, 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 complaining. And so Moses is like, goes into the Lord and says, Lord, you know, I can't deal with this anymore. And the Lord says, Moses, Go out there, speak to the rock. Remember the one you hit 40 years ago? And I brought the water. Speak to that rock. Apparently, that rock followed them, by the way. Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians 10. I don't know if it, it was a kind of rock and roll deal, but whenever the camp started to move, the rock seemed to roll with them, you know? And and then here they set up camp, and Aaron goes to Moses, Don't look now, but there's that rock again, man. Anyways, the Lord uses it to bring water, okay? And so God says, go ahead and speak to the rock, and it's going to bring water and and, and give the people a drink and their animals and so on. So Moses is furious, though. You know, he's really in the flesh. He goes out there and says, you know, must we, must we, bring water from this rock again, you rebels? And he took his rod and he smashed the rock. Well, God graciously brought water from the rock and everyone drank. But God says, Moses, son, come here, we need to talk. You know, I wasn't angry with those people. You were. You misrepresented me. You are my my spokesman. You stand in my place on this earth. You made those people think that I was angry with them when you were. And because you misrepresented me to the children of Israel at what became known as the waters of Mirabah, the waters of strife or contention, he said, you are not going to be allowed now to bring my people into the promised land. Well, see, spiritually, Moses messed up a pretty nice metaphor. Okay? Because the rock represented Christ. And of course, when they first wanted water, which has signified life, of course, they Moses hit the rock as God had commanded. It brought forth water. But now God says, just speak to it. You don't have to strike it again, just speak to it, it will bring forth water. Moses struck it a second time. See, he messed up a perfectly good spiritual illustration. See, Christ was smitten once for everyone. You know, if a person wants to get saved, he doesn't have to go on the cross again and be smitten all over again. Just speak to the Lord, confessing your sins and receiving him as your Lord and Savior. And the living water of God's eternal life will come flooding into your life to satisfy your thirsty soul. But Moses messed that whole thing up. All right, Now that was the historical thing that went on. But there's a spiritual lesson the Holy Spirit is teaching us through this. And that is that Moses, who represents the law, right? It's even called the law of Moses. Moses, who represented the law, could never lead God's people into the promised land. Only Joshua could do that. The name Joshua comes from the Hebrew word Yehoshua, which literally means Jehovah is salvation. Often shortened to just Yeshua. Joshua is our English pronunciation of the Hebrew word. Yeshua in Hebrew is our English equivalent, is Joshua. That same name in the Greek is Jesus. We pronounce it Jesus. So you realize that Joshua and Jesus, they're the same name, which is very interesting to me. That there's an Old Testament book called the Book of Jesus that follows the five books of Moses, which are the law. But not only that. In the book of Hebrews, God called Canaan his rest. And then he went on to call Christ our rest. Therefore, in one sense, the promised land is actually symbolic of our position as Christians as being in Christ and resting in his completed work on our behalf. This is why Moses couldn't lead them into the promised land because Moses represented the law. And the law can never lead a person into rest because by the, the law by its very definition or nature is bringing continuous sacrifices to God, doing continuous works for God that somehow earn God's favor. See, the law will never bring a person rest because the law doesn't really deal with sin. Not completely. It only covered sin temporarily So the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, could come and take away the sin of the world. So since the law and animal sacrifices could only temporarily cover sin until the next sin, it meant people were always bringing a continuous, unending flow of sacrifices to the priest who never had any rest because his work was never done. That was the law. And the law can never lead a person into the rest that only Christ can give, the salvation that comes through Jesus. The law can't do that. Only grace can do that. The grace that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. John said this in John chapter 1 verse 17. He said, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so in that regard, the wilderness represents the old covenant, whereas Canaan speaks of the new covenant, which only our Joshua can bring us into. But I want to just read to you something God said to the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel about the new covenant. God said in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33, He said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. He's talking about the Mosaic covenant. He was saying that I propose the covenant with Israel. That if they would obey me, obey my law, and think of the Ten Commandments, but it went way beyond that. There were 613 laws that God laid down in the Old, the Old Testament. But we think of the ten that are most, we know the most. And God says, if you obey my laws, then I will bless you abundantly on this earth. Do you want to do that, God says? Propose this covenant? Do you want to enter into this covenant with me? Oh, yeah. That sounds great. We'd love to. All right, Moses, come up on top of the mountain. And I'll give you the law. law. I'll give you the terms of the covenant. Moses goes up there. He's up there for 40 days. What do the people do? They're in the valley doing what? Worshiping the golden calf. Because we don't know what's happened to this Moses character. So they, you know, persuaded Aaron to make a golden calf, right? So Moses is up on top of the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. The most important is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And here are the people in the valley. He hasn't even gotten down. From the mountain yet. And they've already broken the first and greatest commandment. See, any time our salvation or relationship with God is based on our works, guess what? It's going to be doomed to miserable failure. Because I'm not faithful. So that was the flaw of the old covenant. It was based on man's faithfulness. God says there's coming a day when I'm going to make a new covenant with not only the house of Israel, but all who believe in Messiah, which is all of us. I'm not going to write my laws on tablets of stone anymore. I'm going to write them on the tablets of their hearts. I'm going to put my spirit within them. See, I'm going to take salvation out of their hands and put it in the hand of my son, who will die in their place. He will be the faithful one, the Lamb of God, perfect, who will die for the sins of the world. And when a person receives my son, They enter into the new covenant and I put my spirit within them and my spirit will then dwell within them. And you know what? They will obey me not because of laws that say if you don't obey, there's consequences. But they're going to obey me now out of love because I've written my laws in their hearts and they're going to love to to keep my commandments and to do my will. Whole different ballgame, isn't it? And so as we look at the old covenant under Moses, the law. See, the law could never bring us into the life of the Spirit, that life of victory and blessing and fruitfulness. Only the grace that comes through Jesus Christ can do that. But here's the thing. Now, I want you to listen carefully. I'm sorry to say too many Christians who have received Jesus Christ and salvation by grace through faith, just like Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, who are now positionally in Christ but are still living their Christian lives, practically speaking, as if they're still under the old covenant, where they're trying to still relate to God through laws and rules and religious works. It's no wonder they find themselves wandering day after day through a spiritual wilderness of dryness and defeat. See, as Christians, you must, absolutely must stop trying to relate to God through laws and works instead of through grace. Paul said in Galatians 3, verse 3, because the Galatians were trying to do this very thing, and he called them on it. He said, Having begun in the Spirit, how were you saved? Were you saved by the law? No, we were saved by grace through faith in Christ. Well, then, having begun in the Spirit, what makes you think that you can now perfect yourself in the flesh or by your own hard work? If God saved you by the power of grace through faith, what makes you think now that you need to take over and finish the work that God began? Now, we understand the reality of that logic. And yet we fall into it all the time. What is legalism? Legalism is an attempt on our part to offer God works. And sometimes it's legitimate stuff. It's reading my Bible. It's going to church. It's worshiping the Lord. It's witnessing to the lost. Good stuff, right? The problem is we begin to think the more we do those things, the more God will love us and accept us. And be pleased with us. That's absolutely untrue. If you love me, Jesus said, do what? Keep my commandments. He didn't say keep my commandments and then I'll love you. That's legalism. Grace says I love you unconditionally right now because you're in Christ. Now go out and serve me out of love. Not out of law, out of love. See, legalism will keep you in a perpetual wilderness experience where there's no fruit, there's no peace, there's no joy, and there's no victory. Listen to me. This is what I believe the Holy Spirit wanted to emphasize right up front in the very first two verses of this book as they stood on the border of the promised land, right, ready to go in. The most important principle at that moment that the Holy Spirit wanted to communicate to them and to us is, look, The only way you can enter into the promised land, which thus is the life of the Spirit, is when Moses dies and Joshua leads you in. Which simply means the law needs to die in our lives before our Joshua, Jesus, can lead us into the promised land of that life in the Spirit. See, it's only when you rest in the completed work of Christ and relate to God through His grace and not through your works that you're going to begin to experience that life that we're talking about, that life of joy and peace, fruitfulness and victory that he has promised us in his spirit. We have got to learn to stop trying to earn God's love. You know, I'm sure that most Christians know that intellectually, but practically and experientially, we blow it all the time because we have grown up. This is the world, not just America or not our families. This is the world. If you do good, you're rewarded. If you do bad, you're punished. Our whole su- legal ju- system of justice is built on that principle. And so when we get saved, we want to bring it into our relationship with God. Even though we know we're saved by grace, it, it's the, still the legalism wants to seep in. Where I begin to think, the more I go to church, the more I read the Bible, the more I pray, the more I witness and be involved in ministry, the more God loves me and accepts me. You don't do those things, He doesn't love you as much as me. And so... We're trying to relate to God through a works righteousness kind of a system. The very thing that Jesus said will never get you into a right standing or relationship with God. It's all by grace. We have to rest in the completed work of Jesus and just enjoy our relationship with the Lord. And whatever we do, I'm not not saying we shouldn't read our Bibles and go to church and witness and so on. Be in ministry. I'm just saying we do those things not out of love, not out of legalism. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 10 says, For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So Moses couldn't lead them into the land, just as the law can't bring you and I into the life of the Spirit. The law can't, but grace through Christ can. And so let me just say this. If we're ever going to experience victory on a daily, ongoing basis over the enemy, we have got to learn to simply rest in Christ and to abide in him every day. And we've talked about what that means over the years. So I'm not going to get into it. It just means you got to just draw close to Jesus. Stay close to him in the word. Keep drawing your strength from him. Keep, by faith, allowing him to live his life through you. We are no match for the enemies we face in this world. But we don't have to because he's already won the, the contest. He's already been victorious. I just need to stay close to him. Walking in faith, and fellowship, and obedience, and let him live his life through me, and he will lead us into victory. So Joshua becomes a type of Christ. Joshua became the captain of the nation of Israel. Their spirit, they're a military leader. Jesus is called the captain of our salvation, Hebrews chapter two, verse ten. And the Bible says that Jesus, our Joshua, leads us into victory. Romans eight thirty seven. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14, Paul said, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Back to Joshua. It says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, rise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Notice that verse in verse 2, But the Lord says to Joshua, go over this Jordan River, you and what? All this people. All this people. Canaan is the life that God intended for every Christian to live without exception. The Spirit-filled life is not just for a select group of super saints, quote-unquote. Guys like Paul and the other apostles and guys like, you know, Spurgeon and Moody and, and others. This is a Life that God desires for all of His people to enter into. And it says at the end of verse 2, Go over this, Jordan. You and all this people to the land which I am what? Giving to them. What does grace mean? Getting what you don't deserve. Grace is all about a gift. You know, if, if God desires for all of us to enter into the promised land, you might say, if it was according to works, how could all of us enter in? Because sometimes... Our works just don't measure up. But if it's by faith, then we can all enter in because we can all believe. And if it's a gift that I just have to reach out and receive by faith, then anybody can do that. All of God's people. Nobody is kept out. Nobody can say, well, I didn't have the opportunity. Because God is saying, look, this is a life for all of my people and it's a gift so that everybody can receive it by faith. All right. Verse 3 says, Every place... That the sole of your foot will tread upon, listen, I have given you. That's a great statement for us as believers. Do you realize, folks, that we are not working towards victory? We are working from it. Again, Jesus already gained the victory. So it's already ours. That's why God is saying to them and to us, I've already given you victory. It's yours. All right? It's yours. As I said to Moses, from the wilderness of this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. God promised them victory. God gave them the land, but they still had to go in and take possession of it through faith and obedience. It was not automatic. But again, just because God gives us something doesn't mean we're going to really enjoy it unless we reach out and receive it and act upon it, right? I mean, God has promised to give us victory no matter how big the enemy, no matter how strong an area of your flesh is, God has promised you victory. However, you still need to stand on those promises. What does that mean? Look look at the the phrase here. God says, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. You know, I, I find it sometimes humorous how the Holy Spirit uses certain language. That you know is pregnant with meaning. You know, we have our little saying, we're standing on the promises, right? What does that mean? I'm standing on what God has said and I'm claiming it for myself. But we have to stand on the promise, right? If God gives you a promise that he's going to provide your needs or he's going to do something else, if you don't stand on it and claim it as your own, well, it's a good promise, but it won't become a reality in your life unless you actively, by faith, receive it. And I think that that's what God was trying to communicate to us. Look, the land is yours, but you've got to go walking all over the place. Everywhere you walk and every place you stand, I've given it to you. In other words, they were standing on the promises of God everywhere they went. We need to do the same thing. We need to stand on God's promises, you know, and claim them by faith. And I hate to use expressions like that because then right away people think, oh, you're one of those word of faith guys. No, man. It's just when you see a promise in the word, you say, Lord, thank you. That promise is for your children. I'm one of your children. I can claim that for me, right? And by faith, I do claim it for me, Lord. See, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 gives us the best definition of faith in the Bible. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Let me read it again. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The word substance there in the Greek means title deed or ownership. Faith is believing that you already own What God has promised in His Word, even if you can't yet see it with your eyes or touch it with your hands. True faith believes without seeing. And if it's true faith, it will always be coupled with expectation. I can read God's Word, and I can read a promise in God's Word, and I can go, that's true. I know it's true because it's God's Word, and I believe God's Word is true. But that doesn't mean I'm going to enjoy the reality of that promise in my life if I don't receive it by faith and expect God to do it. See what I'm saying? I mean, if I don't expect God to actually do what he says. There's a lot of Christians who believe the word of God, of course, but they just don't expect God's going to do it in their life. So they never really experience what God wants to do. Very important point. I don't mean to beat a dead camel, but it's a very important point. That we need to understand that biblical faith is believing that what God has promised, I already have possession of. It's already mine. I'm going to believe it by faith and expect it. What God has promised, he is able to perform. Now, if you look at the land that God gave to them, and we see it here in verses 3 and 4, from Lebanon to the north, to the Negev in the south, from the Euphrates River to the east, to the Mediterranean Sea to the west, and then you look at what they actually captured, you discover that God gave them far more than they ever wanted possessing. So here you have it. God is saying, the whole United States is your... Promised land. But we only inhabit Rhode Island, is the idea. Okay? Just a little piece of all that God promised. Not that they couldn't have possessed it all, they didn't for a lot of reasons. We'll talk about that as we go. But I think that a lot of Christians today have stopped short of possessing all that God has promised to give them. In fact, I'm afraid that very few Christians in America ever really experienced total victory or possessed the fullness of all that God desires to give them. Why is that? Well, like Israel, we leave areas of the flesh unconquered. We fail to drive out the enemy from our lives completely. We don't finish the work God has assigned us. We give up too easily because we get discouraged. As I said many times, this has haunted me over the years, that I would come short of possessing all that God has for my life. Author Ray Stebbins said, and I quote, you can possess all that you want, but never more than you take. If you're satisfied with where you are, And how much of the spirit you possess, you'll never take any more than what you have. If you haven't possessed more, it's because you haven't wanted more. You can have all that you want. You know, there's an interesting verse as we wrap this up in John chapter 3, where John said that God does not give his spirit by measure. In other words, God makes available all of his spirit to every believer. He doesn't say, well, you get so much and you get a little tiny piece here. And no, God is saying, every believer has access to all my spirit. I don't measure out the spirit in little doses. But that doesn't mean that you necessarily experience the fullness of the spirit in your life. The spirit is wanting to fill you your life completely. It's up to us how much of the spirit we want. And it gets into the air of how much do we want God to really control our lives. All right, let me just bring this to a close. Once again, Canaan is called the promised land. And it spiritually equates to the great and precious promises that God has given to us in Christ. Promises that we enter into and appropriate by faith as we live in the spirit and not in the flesh. Peter mentions this. He said in 2 Peter 1 verse 4, By which having been given to us exceeding, exceedingly great and precious promises that through these, we may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So you want to have victory over the world? How does that accomplish? We have to be partakers of the divine nature. How is that accomplished? Through faith. Because God has given us many great and precious promises in his word. Those promises constitute, in a sense, our spiritual promised land. And the more we claim those promises by faith and expect God to fulfill them in our lives the more we're going to be filled up with the Spirit, the more we're going to be partakers of the divine nature, the more victorious we're going to be over the flesh and the world and the devil. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10? He said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. If you're a Christian and you already have life, you have eternal life. It was given to you the moment you received Christ as your Savior. All Christians have eternal life, but not all Christians experience the abundant life which I think relates to Canaan. I mean, it's wonderful to be saved. It's important to be saved. But there's more to the Christian life than just being saved. Yes, God wants to take us out of Egypt, but he doesn't want us to die in the wilderness. He wants to take us all the way to Canaan, the life of the Spirit. Look, this week, and maybe you already have one of these, a promise book. You know, these are books you can get at the Christian bookstore, and they're filled with All the promises out of the Bible. Now you don't need one because the promises are in your Bible. But it's kind of neat to have it in one location, right? Where you got one little book and they have, in this one book, it has all the promises that God has given to us in his word. If you have one of these, imagine that this is my spiritual promised land. This is my promised land. These are the promises that God has given to me. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it. I'm going to familiarize myself with All the promises that God has given to me. And then I'm going to lay claim to those promises by faith. And listen, I'm going to begin to thank God for how he's going to fulfill these promises in my life before I even see anything happening. Because true faith thanks God before the promise is fulfilled. As if God already fulfilled the promise. And of course, when the promise is fulfilled, we thank him some more. But anybody can thank God for what he's already done. That doesn't take faith. True faith, and without faith it's impossible to please God. True faith says, Lord, here's what you've said. I don't see it happening in my life yet, but you've promised me this. Lord, I'm out of work. I don't have a job. I've been praying for a job. It's getting tight. But, Lord, you promised to provide every need I have. Need, not desires, needs. Now, Lord, I'm going to thank you for what you're going to do. I know it's as good as done. You want to read a good book, find a, find a book that deals with the biography of George Mueller. George Mueller lived in the 1800s, quite a man. He purposed in his heart, he was never going to ask man for anything, but would only ask God for his needs. And George wound up running an orphanage that contained at one point five different buildings, and I don't know how many orphans. And there were times, incredible stories of God providing. There were times when they had no food. And so they set the table. They sat down. All the kids and George took hands, and they thanked God for the food he was going to provide. And I'm not making this up. After a few minutes, knock on the door. Some guy was out there. He said, look, I was taking a a load of milk to the market, you know, and my my, you know horse-drawn carriage, the wheel fell off or whatever. Can you guys use some milk? Yeah, bring it in, you know. Somebody else said, you know what? I've uh, baked too much bread for today. Would the kids like to have some bread? Amazing ways God provided for these people, all because one man said, I won't ask man for anything. I'm going to ask God because he's promised to take care of us. And when you trust God in that way, you're going to see miracles happening. You're going to see things happen in your life, and you're going to go, wow, I never realized my God. Puts this awesome. May God help us to understand that. Remember, thank God before you see the fulfillment of His promise, not just after. Any unbeliever can thank God after something happens. A true child of God thanks the Lord before He brings it to pass because we trust His character and we know what He's promised, He's able to perform. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for your great and precious promises in your word. Father, give us grace to allow the law to die in our lives, that we stop trying to relate to you through works and and, and various other good deeds, but that we rest in Christ's completed work. And anything we do for you, Lord, in the way of ministry is not done out of legalism, but out of love, not to earn your favor and your love, but as a response to it. And, Lord, give us grace as we read your promises. And a lot of people are going through hard times, Lord. You know that. People are out of work. Families are struggling. And, Lord, we pray that as we read your word and we come across promises that you've given, that, Lord, we will lay claim to them, we'll stand upon them, and we'll take ownership of them and rejoice and thank you, even though we haven't seen it happen yet, we can't see it or touch it, But we know the promise is going to be fulfilled because you've told us it will be. That we can learn to praise you, Lord, even before you work. Because that honors you. It says we trust you. And we want to trust you, Lord. Because the more we trust you and walk in faith, the more filled with the Spirit and victorious we're going to become. We just praise you, Lord. We ask all this now. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.